Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are currently working our way through Hebrews. As I said, we're almost done with the message series. Today we're gonna do 12, next week we'll do 13 and we'll be complete. But the main message of the entire book of Hebrews, this letter that the author wrote, it can be summed up in a very simple sentence. Don't drift from your faith. Don't shrink back in your faith. That's the purpose of the book. Now he spends 10 chapters in order to encourage the church to stop drifting from their faith by elevating the supremacy of Jesus over all things. But that isn't necessarily the point of the letter. The point of the letter is not just that Jesus is supreme over all things, but that Jesus is supreme over all things and then that reality, it shapes your very life and you order your life around it and therefore on the other side in your daily lives, Christ is magnified so high that you have therefore eliminated the drift in your own life. That's the purpose of the book. Now, last week in Hebrews chapter 11, it was really fascinating because what the author did was in the context of endure, endure, endure. Don't drift back, endure. Don't slip in your faith. Don't drift away. Don't shrink back, endure in that vein of encouragement, the author gave us Hebrews chapter 11, which was a long collection of people who endured in their faith. Now this idea of enduring in your faith um, was tied to, and this is what we talked about last week, these people from Hebrews 11 looked off into the future and they saw what God promised. They saw that God said, a flood is coming. They saw, they heard God said, leave your home and go to this place and I'm gonna make an inheritance for you. God promised these things and because they believed God's promises, they ordered their present day lives around that promise. If God said it's going to rain and he's going to flood the earth, Noah ordered his life around building that boat. That was, that was the point of Hebrews 11. The author wanted us to understand that if you believe these things about God, they shape the way that you function and order your life today. But when we get into Hebrews chapter 12, he answers this question that he knows his audience is going to ask. Okay, I see what you're saying. You're saying that if I believe God and his word and what he says about himself, that that profoundly shapes the way I order my life right now. I get that. I see it in the lives of the people in Hebrews 11. I, I, I understand the concept that faith, what I believe about God should shape the way I live today, but what does that look like? If you're telling me that my faith should order my life today, then what does the ordering of my life look like? What do I do? What is God doing right now to cultivate that endurance inside of me? If you don't want me to, to, to drift in faith and, and drift in, in, in my belief in God and my faith, and I need to sure up that faith and believe God for big things and order my life, then, then what is the ordering look like? 
And in order to answer that question, the author gives us Hebrews chapter 12, and this chapter contains three pictures that help us understand what that looks like. So this is where we're headed. Hebrews 12 shows us what ordering your life looks like if you really believe what God says about himself. Are you ready? Okay, let's get into it. Hebrews chapter 12, we're gonna start in verse one. So verse one says, therefore, so that word connects all of the ideas before in Hebrews chapter 11. So we've seen all of the lives of these people. Based off of those lives, there's something we should be doing. We should be following their examples. We should be currently ordering our lives so we're not drifting in our faith, but we're doing something else. And he's gonna help us understand what that something else is. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so the first picture that we're given by the author is this picture of an Olympic race. And what he says is, if you wanna understand what it looks like to order your life around your faith in God right now, a great way to think about that is to picture a stadium, a track stadium, and you're on the track and you're running a race. And around you in this stadium, the crowds are filled. And who is in the crowds? The crowds are the people from Hebrews 11. Everyone who has already run the race endured, did not drift back in their faith, but they endured, they pressed on, they achieved, they died, they inherited the promises of God. Those folks are in the crowd and they are cheering you on right now. That's how we're supposed to think about the way we order our lives. But there's more to this picture. You've got the crowd filled with people who have already run and complete their race, but at the end, the finish line, there's somebody standing down there, and it's Jesus. And he also has run this race. So here's the picture the author gives us. You wanna understand how to order your life and what, what, if you believe in God, like what do you do with your life? Like what do you start doing on a daily life? Think about it like a picture of you being at a race, the crowd is, is filled with people who have already done it, and Jesus is at the end, and he already did his race, and he's standing there saying, come on baby, come on, come on, do not give up, I, don't, don't slow down, you're not that winded, keep coming. Keep, how do I know you're not that winded? Because I ran this race. I know it's hard, but I finished. And, I, and the way I finished was I looked at the promises that were coming. I looked at that, that reality that I would be seated at the right hand of the Father, that I would judge the nations, that I would have my people inherited. I finished, I endured the suffering, I looked towards the end, and that's how I finished this race. And that's how everybody in the stadium finished their race, and that's how you're gonna finish this race. So keep coming, keep coming. Now that we have the scene set, we start understanding why the scene is so powerful because if you are a racer in this race, 
there are a couple things that are important for you to do in order to order your life around running this race well. And here's the first one. You have to drop weights. And the second is you have to release things that cling. So if you're believing big things about God and you wanna order your life around what you believe, what does that ordering look like? It looks like you in a race dropping the things that are holding you back, that are slowing you down. And it looks like removing all of the flowing clothes that are gonna get tied up around your feet that are gonna ultimately slow you down. This picture gives us an image of people trying to run the race with a carry-on bag being pulled behind them. And what's in this carry-on bag? All of your drama, all of your unforgiveness, all of your emotional um, whims that kind of pull you to here, all of the, um, the, the stuff that you read that isn't good for you, the, the, the stuff that's informing your worldview or your identity, the, the stuff that somebody said to you 20 years ago that you just haven't shake, shaken off, that's what's in this carry-on bag. And you're running this race and Jesus, Jesus at the end and the crowd is filled with all these people and they're like, yeah, come on, come on. But they're looking at each other like, he ain't gonna make it. Not with that carry-on bag. And Jesus is like, let it go. Stop holding on to that. And you're just like, no, but I can't. This is me. This is my identity. I, wouldn't, I don't know what I would do without all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I get all that, but you gotta let it go because if you don't, you're not gonna finish. You have to stop pulling that thing around behind you. That's what it looks like to order your life around what you believe. If you really believe him, then you will stop using that security blanket or that luggage being pulled behind you as something that you have to rely on that you need. Look, you don't need it anymore. Let it go. All it's doing is slowing you down. This idea of letting things go, cutting off the weights, is paired with this other idea of sin that clings to it. And I can't get out of my head while I was preparing this message of, of this like sprinter just about to start the race, but he's not wearing typical sprinter clothes, he's wearing a bathrobe. And it's one of those big ones that you get at a fancy hotel that just kind of flows in the wind. And everyone's watching it going like, like, I know that dude's fast, but I don't think he's gonna finish if he's wearing that. His shoelaces aren't tied. There's so many sins that are clinging to him or just flowing in the wind. This guy is never going to finish. Not because he has baggage, but because he has this habit he refuses to shake. And he's convinced that he can run this race with this habit and it's not a big deal, but this thing is going to be the downfall of him. We all see it, we're watching this dude try to run the race with his shoes untied and we know what's gonna happen. He's gonna face plant. And the author is trying to get us to wrap our head around this. What does it look like for a Christian to order their life in such a way that they believe God's promises? It looks like the response to that belief is, well, I believe God is faithful and so then I don't need this thing anymore. I believe that God is my healer and he supplies all of my needs according to his riches and glory and, and I don't need this anymore. It looks like getting rid of the stuff that's so, that clings so tight and so close to us. 
It means that if I'm going to, in my Christian walk, cultivate endurance so I actually make it to the finish line and inherit eternal life, I have to drop weights and let go of stuff that clings to me. That's the first picture. Let's go on to verse three. Verse three and four are kind of a pair to the first picture. We don't get into the second picture just yet. But verse three is kind of a a deeper dive in this guy who's at the finish line calling us to finish Jesus. Verse three, it says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So in this picture of the race, we've seen the crowd, we've seen the Christian running his race. The author takes the camera and zooms in on Jesus at the finish line and he's telling the racers, if you're having a hard time cultivating endurance, if you feel like you just can't let go or that thing clings so closely to you, what do you do? Look at the finish line and stare at Jesus. Do you need an example of endurance? Do you need encouragement? Look to the one at the finish line. Look to the one who we're told in Philippians 2. Did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead humbled himself to the point of a servant humbled himself so far that he even died on a cross. If you need an example of endurance, look at the guy who took on human flesh, who was God, but humbled himself to the point of the servant and washed his disciples' feet. If you're struggling with endurance, if you're feeling like your your race is the hardest race that's ever been run, you're dealing with more pain than anybody in the history of the world has ever dealt with, and, and you suffered more than anybody's ever suffered with, I don't mean to diminish your suffering, but what the author is doing is saying, like, let's put things in context, okay? You haven't suffered to the point of bloodshed and you haven't suffered to the point of the sins of the world being placed on your shoulders. Honey, I know it's tough, but it ain't that tough. Man, I know that, I, I know the struggle. I know the mental exhaustion. I know the struggle. I get it. Life is hard. The author is saying, I'll give you that, but it's not an excuse to get out of the race because it's just so hard. Because frankly, your race isn't the hardest race that's ever been run. Look at Jesus. He's your source of encouragement and he will fill you with endurance. Let's go on for the next picture, verse five. It says, and, that's the introduction to the next picture, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. It's a quote from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. What are we talking about again? We're talking about endurance, finishing the race. Why does the Lord 
discipline us so that you'll finish the race. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Ah, See, that's the problem right there. Some of us didn't have that. And some of us are not doing that right now. This is a perfect example. There is a way that you think that is right unto yourself and there is a way that the Bible tells you is how you should be ordering your life. And if you're a father who refuses to discipline your children, you are not following in the way that your heavenly father has set for you. I love you, but if you are exempting yourself from discipline within your family, if you just only wanna play good cop, if you make your wife do all the bad decisions, if you refuse to hold your children accountable and discipline them, you are ruining your children. I love you, but you are. Maybe you read a book that told you, no, no, you you gotta let a child kind of explore and become, and that's not what the Bible says about parenting. Now we're not talking about, I'm not, I'm not talking about beating your children. That word discipline is something different. I'm not saying that you shouldn't spank your child. That's on, uh, well, you can't say that. It's 2023. You can't say that. I spanked all three of my children. Meet them after service and tell me how it worked. How, how, how do you think it worked? But you can't, just, you can't just spank a child. There, there, is, there is love that comes alongside of that. And, and if they don't understand where the discipline is coming from, if they don't understand that you are disciplining them because you love them and you're trying to train them and you want the best for them, then you do just come across like a brute. And I should probably have coffee with you because there's some things we need to talk about. But this idea that we can just ignore discipline, it's not a thing kids need. You are ruining your kids. They need boundaries just like you need boundaries. And we, and we get that not just because it's a thing we talk about, it's a thing because the Heavenly Father does it with His kids. And if you think that it's good enough for Him to do with you, but it's not good enough for you to do with your kids, there's an issue with way you, the way you're ordering your life and what you say you believe. Yeah. Some of you just turned me off. That's fine. Verse nine. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Nobody likes discipline. It never feels good. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this is the second picture. The first picture is a race. 
So if we're thinking about developing um, endurance in our lives, it's developed if you think in the sense of a race, but it's also in, uh, developed another way. Endurance is developed through this thing called discipline. So if you wanna think about what God is doing in your life, it certainly has to do with running a race and dropping weights, but it also, another way to think about it is that you are a child and he is a father and he disciplines you because he loves you. Now the word discipline absolutely means discipline. It means correction. But it doesn't just mean that. It also means to train and to encourage. It means to educate the child. So we're, we're, we're not just talking uh, in the sense that when a parent uh, disciplines the child, they're correcting them and disciplining them, you're in timeout, or there's some kind of repercussion for what you did, and I'm trying to train you that this is bad. The word discipline also includes this idea that the father is looking at something that isn't necessarily a sin, but in love calls that out because the correction is better for the kid in the long run. Hey, quit chewing with your mouth open. Not a sin issue, but one day you're gonna be invited to a fancy dinner. And what you don't want is to be the guy sitting over there. (laughs) Bro, bro, close it. I love you, this is discipline. Look, I know you don't wanna make your bed when you wake up in the morning, but make it anyway. That's under the category of discipline, why? Because I understand the value of accomplishing the first thing on the list when you roll out of bed. If you, some of you are just like, what is this guy talking, I don't make my bed. There are certain things that if you order your life around because of what you believe and being a part of this family, it creates a sense of structure and accomplishment. And if the father comes behind and says, hey, in our house, this is what we do and you're not doing it, it is a loving reminder that you belong to this house. Because guess what I don't do? Come to your house and tell your kids what they need to do. I'm not part of your family. And nobody in here is going to come to my house and start telling my kids what their rules are. The fact that I am the one who structures the rules reminds them that they are part of my family and not your family. That's the beauty of the way God sets it up. So what he says here is that we have this paradigm that we understand here on earth. That in order to get to the end, in order to endure, we have to be trained and corrected. And the best way to think about how that works is to look at a family dynamic. The father comes in and organizes and creates structure and discipline for the children in the family. And the reason why he does this is because he knows that the child doesn't know what's best for them. The child does not know what is best for them. The child thinks what is best for them is to not go to school and play Lego all day. The child thinks what is best for them is to eat candy. But we know that if you allow these kind of habits to continue, down the road, we're headed in a very dangerous direction. So the father says, look, I know that you think you know what is best for you, but I'm your dad and I'm giving you structure and I'm telling you, no, that's called discipline. We have this expectation 
If you intentionally do the opposite, there will be discipline in the form of correction. But if we have these expectations and you don't necessarily intentionally break them, you just fall short or just, you, just, you just weren't thinking. I don't love you if I don't also correct you by calling that stuff out. By saying, hey look, pull, pull your child aside and say, hey look, I love you but, but I'm starting to notice that like when you get under pressure, you, you lose it a little bit. Or when you get under pressure, when you feel like people are starting to come against you, I've just noticed that you kind of like, you bow up and, and, and your response is anger uh, or, or, or your, your default is that it's somebody else's problem, it isn't yours, you just wanna push that away. Look, I love you too much to send you out into the world with you thinking that that's the right way to function. That's discipline. And it requires a lot of conversations. But what the author is reminding us is that even as the father is doing this, he doesn't have all of the picture. Verse 10, for, for they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. In all cases, a parent is trying to discipline, correct, train their child, but they only see partly, and so sometimes parents get it wrong. But there is a father who never gets it wrong. He sees us better than ourselves, and what he's doing in our lives is training and correcting us. God wants you to grow and endure to the end, and so he corrects and trains He encourages, he brings discipline. And just like in the scenario with the father, the earthly father and the earthly son, the son knows that he belongs to the family because the father is loving enough to discipline him. When our father disciplines us, it is a reminder that we belong to his family because the heavenly father isn't disciplining people that don't belong to his family. He's bringing judgment against those people. So, Cultivating endurance in our lives looks like embracing discipline and correction and training. Second picture, let's go to verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, but it, but, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." Since your heavenly father loves you so much and he brings correction and trains you, here's how you order your life around that. Lift your hands and strengthen your knees and let no root of bitterness spring up inside of you and avoid sexual immorality and unholiness like Esau. That's what it looks like to order your life if you have a loving heavenly father who brings discipline to you. But here's the the fascinating thing about the way that he makes this argument. 
This is classic Hebrews where he is making an argument by deep, by drawing from the deep Old Testament well of resource, the old database we used to talk about when we went through Revelation. He's not just making the point that, hey, because your father loves you and disciplines you, like lift your hands, strengthen your knees. He's not just pulling this out of thin air. He's not just saying, hey, make sure you pay attention to the root of bitterness. And when he says the root of bitterness, he's not thinking of bitterness in the sense that you're thinking. So you're like, okay, well, if I believe God and I'm or, or, or ordering my life around that belief, then one of the things I should do is I should get rid of bitterness in my life. That's a good piece of advice. Certainly do that. But that's not where the author is drawing from. Let me show you what I mean. The pieces that he's drawing from, this idea of lifting your hands and strengthening your knees, no bitterness, avoiding sexual immorality, are rooted in these stories that the author wants to strike in your imagination so that you go back and you reread these things to remind yourself. Isaiah 35, the prophet tells a returning Israel that your Messiah is coming. And when he shows up, he's going to heal blind eyes. He's going to turn the desert into a highway. He's going to strengthen your knees and lift your hands. And so when the author is saying one of the ways you order your lives is to lift your hands and strengthen your knees, he's not just literally saying that. He's saying, remember the imagery that we were given back in Isaiah 35? Go back and read that chapter and order your life around what you draw from that chapter. You have a Messiah who's coming one day and therefore order your life around worship. Order your life around lifting your hands and strengthening your knees because you have a Father who loves you and he's coming for you. That's the beauty of that, that message. And it, it goes even further. Uh, the idea of letting no root of bitterness spring up inside of you comes from Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 19. Moses, in this chapter, is renewing the covenant with a disobedient Israel. And he's telling them, listen, this is the covenant that you swore to, this is the covenant you've been disobedient to, but I want you to be obedient to this, and as we move forward, from this point forward, you've been absolutely a nightmare. But moving forward, I want you to be aware of the roots that produce bitter fruit inside of you. And when he says the roots that produce bitter fruit inside of you, what he says, this is the actual quote from Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 19, the kind of fruit that when he hears the words of the Lord sworn in the covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I will be safe even though I'm going to walk in the stubbornness of my heart. What is the root of bitterness? The root of bitterness is saying, I could disobey and be fine. I can ignore my father's correction and he's still gonna love me. I can ignore the covenant, ignore the commands, ignore the, the encouragement to order my life around faith and I'll still be fine. That is a root of bitterness that you have to eliminate in your life, thinking that you're exempt from the correction of the Lord. That all of this discipline is for a different family, but not yours. That the sermon on Sunday was for some other guy and not you. That I can continue to walk in my disobedience and it'll be fine. And then the last one is an encouragement to go back and read Genesis 25 through 28. The author wants you to refresh your mind on the story of Esau. Esau was a guy who had no regard for God's blessings, 
no regard for his birthright. He had no value for sexuality. He viewed, or he, excuse me, he had no value for the covenant. He valued sexuality over the covenant. And when given the opportunity, he married somebody outside of the covenant family just despite his father. He refused his father's training because he wanted his own way instead of his father's ways. So he entered into immoral sexual covenants. The idea being that you will not cultivate endurance if you disrespect the father's training. So we have two pictures now. We've got the picture of a race, and we've got the picture of a loving father. And both of these are, help, are designed to help us understand what ordering our life around faith looks like in order to produce this endurance. But we've got a third one, and this is where we're gonna finish. Go to Hebrews 12, we'll go to verse 18. It says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused, when who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So we've got a picture of two mountains here. But the power is not in the mountains. The power is in what happened at the mountains. There's one mountain that shook violently and there's another mountain that does not shake. And you have come to the mountain that is unshakable. And that is the picture as we close in on verse 29. At that time, his voice shook the earth. What time? Sinai. God's voice shook the earth and it freaked everybody out. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth this time, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. Yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So to close chapter 12, we have the third and final picture. We see Sinai, a mountain that shook at the voice of God, and we have Zion, an unshakable mountain. 
Now, why is the author drawing attention to the fact that there is a shaking and a not shaking? It's because the verse he quotes in verse 26 is Haggai 2.6, when God declares that he will once again shake the heavens and the earth, and he's talking about his second coming. So here's the picture. How are we supposed to think about the way we order our lives today in view of the faith we believe in our God? We embrace the shaking that he brings into our life now and the shaking that is coming to the earth because we know that when he starts shaking things, the stuff that doesn't belong to him will crumble and fall and the only thing that remains is his stuff. That's the third and final picture and frankly, it's my favorite picture. If you wanna think about what is going on in your life, a great way to describe it would be, I'm running a race and I'm having to let some things go. That's a good way to think about the way you're cultivating endurance. Another great way to think about it is, I've got a loving father and he knows what I need and he's disciplining me and he's correcting me. That's another great way to think about how God is cultivating endurance. But another really powerful way is to think about the mountain that you have come to. You have come to Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and what God is doing in your life is best described as shaking everything at the very foundation level. And if what is in your home is built on a foundation that isn't Zion, it will not stand. And that is the value of thinking about God cultivating endurance in your life through shaking. Because he's got one desire for you, and this is it, Zion, only Zion. He wants his kingdom to be the only thing that your life is about. He wants you to treasure the sun more than anything. And stuff that you built on a foundation that isn't firm, things you've got in your house that are sitting on little end tables that aren't firm, stuff in your house that's fine china that is a reflection of your past hurts, and you put it on a wall like some kind of trophy that everyone has to tiptoe around. Don't be careful, don't break mom's china. That's not china, mom, that's hurt. And you're putting it on display like it's your identity, it's who you are. Well, I don't know any different. And the Lord says, I do know different and here's how I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna break your china. I'm gonna shake your home. I'm gonna shake your heart so that everything that is not Zion will crumble. And it's gonna be painful and you won't like it and you will shed tears. But what I'm offering you is a kingdom that cannot be shaken and your fine china can't stand next to Zion. So this is the beauty of Hebrews 12. Three pictures that help us understand what it looks like to order our life around faith. I believe that God is returning to earth to judge the wicked and save his people. Well, if I believe that, how am I ordering my life today? Well, I'm letting some things go. I'm pulling off some sin that so closely ensnares and entangles me. I'm embracing the discipline that my heavenly Father is trying to give me. I lovingly receive his correction because I don't have it all right. But I also buckle up because he is bringing a shaking. 
He's bringing a shaking to the earth when he comes, but the shaking has already begun. It's begun in the hearts of his people, and that's how I can best describe what is going on in my life. God is shaking me to the very core, and things that I treasured, that I had high value on, they're now laying in pieces. And when they hit the ground and they shattered, I shed a tear, but now that I look at them on the ground, I realize I didn't really want that in the first place. Because what I'm inheriting is so superior to that thing that held value. I thought it held value, somebody told me it had value, but man, when the shaking started, you realized it didn't really hold any value. So here's the encouragement for, you, for, for the church today. This is what the author of Hebrews wants you to hear. The greatest thing that could happen to you is for your most treasured possession to break. The greatest thing that could happen to you today is to leave this place and keep that carry-on uh, package suitcase under your chair and you leave and you don't ever pick it up again. Greatest thing that you could do today is to embrace the love of your heavenly father and let him spank you for being disobedient. The pictures given in this chapter are so rich and they draw us farther back into the word to start digging in that soil, to get, get the word under our fingertips so that we are familiar with that soil because that's the soil that your faith is planted in. So folks, if you want to endure, buckle up and embrace the shaking. Let go of some things and start embracing the love the Father has to bring discipline into your life. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.